Well, good evening. Welcome. Um, hey, want to real quickly, uh, as I ask our ushers to come forward for our uh, weekly tithes and offering, just make a couple quick announcements. Um, we've already prayed for that, so ushers, you, you can go ahead and, and pass that. But um, let me just say thank you so much, Timberline family, just for your faithfulness to, to give to impacting the broader world as well as our local community here. So thank you so much for your faithfulness as stewards that everything that, that God's given you. A um, couple things on the, the, the back of your bulletin. There is uh, an announcement in there about a table that we have in the back. I'm going to mention that a little bit more in, in detail, but that, that's where it'll be some of those details about a uh, missions trip that's, that's coming up that's really exciting because it's a little different than anything that, that we've done before in the past. And um, also, I, I need to both apologize and then put a request out there. Uh, last week, Matt uh, Hickey, who, who did such a wonderful job uh, teaching and, and, and pastoring us last week, uh, mentioned, said, we're going to have coffee and snacks in the back. And there, were no, there was no coffee and snacks in the back, and that was my fault. So um, tonight we will have decaf coffee and snacks in the back. In fact, brownies with uh, whipped cream of all things. It's not Cool Whip, but it's, but it's whipped cream. Um, so that'll be back there. But anyway, uh, a couple other people have asked, hey, could I, like, could I bake cookies? I have the spiritual gift of baking. And yes, we, we would love that. If, if you would like to do that, uh, uh, we have an email on the back here. If, if some of you would say, man, I would love to just do that, put something together occasionally, uh, let us know. We would love to have home-baked goods back there. Wouldn't you love to have home-baked goods back there? Okay, I, w- I would love that. Um, we are in a series going through Psalm 23, and uh, tonight we're taking a little bit of a turn on our focus. One thing we're doing every week is we're, we're reading the psalm from, from a different translation, uh, sometimes the speaker reads a different translation from you, which isn't that helpful, so we'll, we try to be better at that. But tonight we want to read from, from what's called the message. It's a, it's a paraphrase. Eugene Peterson did it. And it's, it's kind of a fun way to capture the, the, the big ideas in it. So would you together with me, let's read Psalm 23 from the message. It should be up on the screens here. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your word, you let me catch my breath and send me in the right direction. Even when the way goes through death valley, I'm not afraid when you walk at my side. Your trusty shepherd's crook makes me feel secure. You serve me a six-course dinner right in front of my enemies. You revive my drooping head. My cup brims with blessing. Your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. I'm back home in the house of God for the rest of my life. Amen. Um, The structure of the psalm is kind of interesting. Lots of times it can be helpful when you you go to understand or, or read a psalm in particular because it's poetry, because it's been put together carefully, because it was put to, to music, to, to think about how exactly it was structured. And this psalm in particular, uh, verses 1 through 4, what's, what's the metaphor that, that David is leaning on to, to teach us? How does God interact with us? How does he want to do life with us? He picks a shepherd. Now, we take a turn tonight, uh, verses 5 and 6, which we'll look at this weekend next, he takes a turn and he, he kind of drops the whole 
uh, shepherd metaphor, and he now, he now replies, or relies on the, the picture of a gracious host. And so he's no longer leaning on the shepherd. You know, we refer to this as the shepherd's psalm, but that's only really half the psalm. He now turns the corner of the door, and he picks up a very different one. Now, both of these really provide the exact same thing for people, don't they? Food, drink, and protection. Uh, the shepherd leads the sheep into lush pastures, watering holes. He guides them in these very treacherous places, puts them on the, the right path so there's safety there. And in the same way, in the ancient world, a host who, who has brought someone into his, into his tent or his home has now put his seal of protection at his own life's risk over the person who is there, uh, gives them ample drink, food, again, all under the protection of his home. What's interesting is, as you think about this, these two areas right here, because the gracious host we'll see is really, it's a warrior king who's the host. It's not just anybody. These are the two phases of David's life, broken down in this one psalm right here. And what's interesting is, see, God, God fathers David. He, he teaches David by David's past experiences, both by this whole shepherd thing that we've talked about and now this whole warrior king who becomes a gracious host. And see, I would suggest that most of the things that you and I learn in life, we learn new things through taking old things and saying, well, it's like this. It's kind of like that. I was, I was talking to uh, my son the other night. I was putting him to bed, and he was talking about, he was kind of bummed. He's like, yeah, there's this you know, kid at school, and he's making fun of me because like, I'm not good at this, like this one particular area. And so I'm trying to say, well, you know, God made everyone with like gifts and abilities, some things you're good at and some you're not, and, and uh, you know, that's okay. Like you need to learn that there's some things you're just like, you're not going to be good at, and you kind of just need to be okay with that. And he's kind of not getting. He's like, well, why do you just make me good at everything? That'd solve it all. And I'm like, well, that's true. You know, they say this darndest things, don't they? And, uh, and so I'm thinking, okay, like, what does he know? And I go, okay, hey, I said, you play video games, right? And he goes, yeah. And I said, okay, well, how about, you know this video game, like, where you've got to select different guns because, like, you, you know, you go after the bad guys? I said, like, how, how do you pick what gun you use? He goes, well, you know, like, if I'm going long range, i got to get the sniper gun because, you know, and so he starts telling me all these details. You know, it's a little disgusting how much he knows about this stuff. And, uh, and I said, well, what about like other things? He's like, well, you know, if I'm in you know, close quarters, I need this gun because you know, it has, you know, it reloads really fast and um, you know, all, all, these different, all these different details you know, that he's talking about. And, uh, and I said, well, so like, how do you know what gun is what? And he goes, well, there's a loadout page. And so this is like the specs of the gun. So there's like a picture of the gun, and then there's a bar. And it's like, you know, depending on how high, this is its accuracy. This is a bar of its ability to do damage. Here's the you know, ability to, you know, all these different specs. And so I said, well, that's kind of like you. Like, God's made you for a purpose. He has something in your life that he wants you to do. Many things. And so he made you a particular way. And he's like, oh, so you're saying God gave me a loadout page? I'm like, <laughs> kind of, yeah, it's kind of like that. <laughs> but, and all of a sudden he kind of goes, oh, I get it. And I thought, that's how we learn so often. Like, we take what we know and we say, that's kind of like this area that I don't know yet. And so what what God does is God uses David's experience as a shepherd to teach him some really important pictures about how he wants to do life with him and with us. But now the second half of the psalm that, that we're turning to tonight, verse 5, 
uses a totally different picture, but also from David's experience. Verse 5, if you have your Bibles. You prepare a table before me, he says, in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, if you were to go back in time, uh, prior to this psalm being written, it's, it, it's likely that this psalm was written at a time where there's a lot of strife in David's family. Uh, people have turned against him, even some inside like his own household. Um, he's not on the run, but I mean, his, you know, his, his future is a little iffy at moments. If you go back, um, the book of, of 2 Samuel recounts David's rise to power, and it's this phenomenal, it's this easy-to-read book. And, and 2 Samuel starts with the death of his predecessor, King Saul, as well as King Saul's son, Jonathan, who was David's very best friend. And one of Saul's sons, in fact, Ishbosheth, even tries to keep the kingdom in his family, because he knows it's going to pass over to David, but he kind of holds on to it with, you know, tight reins, and, and he's king, supposedly, for like two years until he's assassinated. And, and, and finally, and this wasn't, it wasn't by any of David's men, it was by some other people, but, but finally, David becomes the, the undisputed king of Israel. And so all of Israel comes together at this uh, city called Hebron, and they kind of have this coronation ceremony. They anoint him as king over all of Israel. And he's, he's in his early 30s. He's a young man at this time. And David marches on Jerusalem, because at this time, Jerusalem is controlled by the Jebusites. It's, it's a fortress. And so he marches on this fort of Jerusalem, takes it over, sets up his, his own reign in there, calls it the city of David. And in 2 Samuel 5, 9, we read this, speaking of David. He built up the area around it, speaking of this fortress of Jerusalem, from the supporting terraces inward. And he became more powerful because Yahweh God Almighty was with him. So he defeats the Philistines. Uh, he even brings the ark. This is the ark, remember, that had traveled for years with Moses and the others out in the desert. He brings it into this new capital city of Jerusalem. And at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 8, we read, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So David is at this place where he's, like, he's, at the, he's at the pinnacle of his success. It's just growing and growing. He's just getting more momentum as he goes. And he does something really interesting at this point. He stops. David like pauses. It says he sits down, and in 2 Samuel 9, he asks a really interesting question. He says this, 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, Jonathan is Saul's son, David's best friend. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he replies, your servant. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered, the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. And, he, and then he adds this little statement. He is crippled in both feet. Now, kind of as a parenthetical statement, if, if you go back to chapter 4, it tells the story of kind of how, how this happened. There's this very quick parenthetical statement. Right after the news comes that the old regime has been wiped out, King Saul and his son Jonathan are dead, this, this nursemaid who's taking care of a young five-year-old boy named Mephibosheth, 
grabs him to flee to save his life because he will be killed just like everybody else is what she assumes. She grabs him and somehow in the process the boy falls, he has some sort of accident and he's, he's uh, lame in his legs for the rest of his life. And back in verse 4 it says, David says, uh, where is he? Zeb answered, he is in the house of Machir, son of Amiel and Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from this house, and when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he, he bowed down to pay him honor. David says his name, Mephibosheth, and his reply is, your servant. Now, we should like pause here for a second and, and just get the gravity of what's going on here. You have to understand, the standard response in the ancient world, anytime that, that you discover an heir to the throne of the previous guys, you know what you do to them? What's, yeah, what do you do to them? You're all too nice. But you know what they would, yeah, you absolutely kill them. You get rid of them. You wipe them out. Because see, that way there's no chance of a coup. Because there will always be people who, who are still favorable to the old party, to the old command, and in fact prefer that. So this is the standard response. And Mephibosheth, who's lived his life in secrecy and hiding, now comes before David, probably expecting what everyone else would do. And David responds in verse 7, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you, and this is really interesting, the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, that's one, and the number two, this is kind of the awestruck part here, you will always eat at my table. Verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, here's his statement, will always eat at my table. And it tells us now Ziba had 15 sons, 20 servants. So 36 people all together. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord, the king commands his servants, his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Um, David gives to Mephibosheth all of the land. Now think about this. All of the land that Saul had owned. It, all of this land had passed on to David, the new king. So at great cost to himself, he says, Every, all of this land that was owned, I'm giving it back to this guy here. And at great cost to himself even, he gives as an inheritance in Mephibosheth uh, uh, the cost of labor. He gives him 35 along with Ziba, so 36 high-level workers to take care of the estate and to provide for Mephibosheth. And so this young man who's been in, really in hiding his whole life. All of his, all of his relatives have been assassinated uh, or, or killed in battle. And since a five-year-old boy, at five years old, this tragic accident had left him handicapped in both legs, um, which in the ancient cultures, you have to understand, in the, in the oriental cultures, that was a sign that this person is not fit to be sovereign, not fit to be king. 
how do you think a guy like that, this Mephibosheth, how, how do you think he had, he had come to see himself? What do you think his, his self-image was? Um, he uses the self-description here of uh, like a dead dog. Sorry, like a dead dog. Now, we have to understand, too, in this culture, it's not like, you know, you know Sam and Jack and, you know, uh, Frodo and Spike. It's, these are not like loved house pets when a person refers to a dog. Um, there, there would be a lot more like, like we would think of a, a rat. Um, this would be just a dirty scavenger, a parasite, um, who really just survives by, by living off of others, despised by everyone around him, okay? So he gives this, this snapshot of, of this self-concept that he has. This had shaped this young man's life, his self-image, since he was just a little boy, dreaming about, what, what do I want to be when I grow up? And all of a sudden, these, all these dreams are torn away from him, really, really by no choice of his own, by no fault of his own, and he's handed a, a whole new script for his life. And it's, it's not an adventure with unknown things, it just it turns into something like a Greek tragedy. There seems to be no hope. And it is into this tired, emotionally arrested, developed little heart that David speaks and he says, you will eat at my table just like the rest of my sons will. I will prepare a table before you in the presence of those whom you thought were going to be your enemies. And so David hands him a totally revised script. It's not a tragedy anymore. The script is something more like an action adventure with this re redemptive theme like he's never seen before. And, and, and years later now, years later, God teaches David something about how life with God is going to be. He takes an event from his past, which David's reminded of every time he sits down, picks up a cup, eats food, every time he looks around his table. And he says, at a very low point in David's life, when some of his own family has uh, turned against him, when, when he's um, also kind of reaping the consequences of his own decisions, he, he's got some really corrosive, destructive um, consequences from foolish decisions that he himself made in his life. And God says to him, see, David, I'm, I'm the warrior king, um, and I will prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. Now, a quick aside here, he mentions two other things in this psalm. He, he, he says, um, anointing a head with, with oil and, and a, a cup overflowing. In the ancient Near East, you've got, you've got a really dry, dusty, you know, sun-baked land. And um, this is the idea of putting oil on, on someone's head, a guest, when they come to your house is, uh, you know, they typically like take olive oil, mix it with some sort of a spice or a perfume to give it a good smell. But essentially, this is just an act of hospitality. Uh, it's, it soothes dry skin, moisturizes it. Um, remember in Luke 7, there's a, there's a Pharisee named Simon who invites Jesus to his house, and he comes in, and in the middle of the meal, this woman comes in, and she's, you know, she's cr crying on him, and, and this guy's thinking to himself, you know, why is this, if Jesus really were a prophet, he would know what kind of lady this is. And, and Jesus says, you know what, I walked in your house, you didn't, you didn't give me a kiss of greeting. She hasn't stopped kissing me like since I walked in. 
you didn't put any oil on my head, and yet she, she broke this expensive oil, and she's put it all over, not just my head, my feet, for goodness sakes, right? So this is this common picture of, of how you embrace someone. So doing this says, you're accepted, I will take care of you, and I'm concerned about you. And he also mentions this cup, right? He says, my, my cup runs over. Um, one thing that a host might do, not all the time, but might do, if, if, he, really, if he really has a lot, if he wants to let you know that you know, every, everything's good, when he pours wine in your cup, he'll pour and pour until it, it's like it spills out, almost, almost accidentally overflowing, so as to say, almost like, oh, I don't, I don't even care if it spills. I got so much. You don't need to worry about it. There's no lack. I, I've got tons in the back. You can, you can spill it. I don't really even care. It's this picture of absolute provision. And so the message to David is that your warrior king, God, will provide ultimate victory for you. And we know this too, right? It's not just the Psalms you know, that talk about this. How does the book of Revelation end? It's this picture, uh, really, I, uh, I was talking to um, a friend of mine, Les, who was, who was teaching a class on Revelation here a couple, I don't know, it was a month ago or something along those lines, and, and I said, so like, what do you think, you know, big picture, what would you say the book of Revelation is about? You know, could you sum it up? And he said, I think it's the victory of Christ. I think that's the big idea. He wins in the end. That's, that's what we get out of it. So this isn't anything new to us. We know this. Um, but here's the rub. Um, the reality is we all experience difficulty, right? I, I don't always experience a whole lot of victory in a lot of areas of my life. I experience fear, uh, trials, you know, crushed, missed expectations. And, you know, along with guys like Jeremiah and, and Job and, and David, we say, why do the wicked prosper, right? I mean, it's like they live careless lives, you know, Dave goes on to say, like, surely I've kept my hands clean for nothing. Like, why? It doesn't seem like there's a, it's like there's a disproportion to living the good life, living the right life, I should say, and it's not, there's not an immediate two plus two equals four. It's not like I get this, I don't live in constant victory and life is, life is easy. And so the big question is, how do we, how do we live in this kingdom of, you know, Jesus' biggest idea that he talked about was the kingdom of God, meaning his rule, right? So he, he announces it, but the reality is there's a here to the kingdom, and there's a not yet to the kingdom, right? The kingdom has been inaugurated. Jesus is cosmic king of the universe. And we see the end of the story. You know, Revelation 21 talks about various places in the Old Testament. But it, do you get this feeling that we're kind of living in the middle right? It's like, yeah, there's victory, but so I'm living in the presence of, of, of enemies still. The reality is his life is very difficult. So how do we live in this between two points until that time that Christ subdues all enemies and all evil? How do we live in the presence of enemies? Well, first, I, I would suggest this. I would suggest that there, there are really two categories of enemies. We tend to kind of only think of one, but, but, but really there are two. Um, think about the wording of, of the current military oath. If anyone's uh, in the military here, enlisted or um, commissioned officer, the wording goes like this. I do solemnly swear 
that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, recognizing the two great categories of evil in our life, right? And by, by domestic, I mean inside, inside us. There's evil outside that we deal with, and then there's evil in here. It's, it, it's truly domestic to me. So think about these two categories. What does it mean to live in the middle, in between these two points, is kingdom come, ultimate victory, and yet living in the presence of enemies? So let's just look at, real quickly, these, these two categories. Think about this. First, let's think about the enemies out there. Um, Jesus had something really interesting to say about how we go out there. Matthew 10, 16, listen to these words. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Isn't that interesting? Um, sheep, you know, he picks, he picks not the most austere and impressive, like, animal, does he? Um, I was thinking this last week, think, think of all the, the animals, the, you know, maybe mascots or the pictures that, that, that Jesus could have used to speak about how it is that he's sending us out to live, again, amongst the difficulty, amongst the enemies. Um, he could have picked Broncos, right? Yeah. Uh, he, said, you know, he could have said, you know, go out like bobcats, uh, like badgers, like, like bears, like Bengal tigers, like barracudas, like bulls, like blue devils. Well, maybe not blue devils. But um, I haven't even gotten through the bees, right? He could have picked so many. And yet, he picked sheep. I mean, he picks this picture of, of animals that's just, it's, it's not a great picture. I was reading an article this week about the, uh, the top 10 bad, meaning worst, um, college mascots out there. Listen to some of these. Uh, I, I've, this is real. Uh, number 10, University of Delaware Blue Hens. That's, that's bad. Um, number 9, University of Irvine Anteaters. Uh, if John Ingalls here, he'll like this one. University of Wyoming Cowboys and Cowgirls. That was, that was number seven. Pastor John Ingalls will like that. Uh, University of Louisiana at Lafayette Raging Cajuns. You know what their, ma their mascot is? A cayenne pepper. <laughs> um, Evergreen State Geoducks. I, I didn't even know what a geoduck was. I had to look that up. Um, this is, okay, this is interesting. Carnegie Mellon University. You know what their mascot is? A, uh, no, Carnegie Mellon, right? These are the geniuses. Uh, Black Scottish Terrier. Anyone guess his name? Scotty. Yeah. You think Carnegie Mellon could come up with something more, a little more pithy than Scotty. Um, number four, Scottsdale Community College Fighting Artichokes. <laughs> number three, University of California, Santa Cruz. You know what their mascot is? Sammy the Banana Slug. This is true. This is true. Uh, Wichita State University Shockers, and they're, they're, that's like electricity. And their mascot is Wooshock, W-U, Wooshock. Um, Delta State University, number one, Delta State University, fighting okra. <laughs> it's breakfast food, for goodness sakes. Um, now, fortunately, the list makers didn't include high schools. You know why I'm saying that? Yeah, exactly. Um, because we know what would be on the list, right? Our own little lambkins, right? Um, yes. Go lambkins, absolutely. 
But, okay, no, but at the same time, have you seen these pictures that are made of lampkins where they try to make them look mean? They have like a furrowed brow and they're snarling. You know, it doesn't work. I mean, you cannot make a baby lamb, you know, intimidating at all. Now, do you know um, what's, what's so interesting to me as I think about this is how does a sheep go out? How does a lamb go out among wolves? Um, humbly, really, really humbly, um, willing to suffer, willing to be on the bottom and not the top, uh, willing to serve, right? Um, with no agenda, maybe it's, maybe it's just coming alongside people, maybe, maybe it's people that no one, no one else would really care to be with. There was a, there was a big game on TV the la this last Sunday, we all know, and I can guarantee you that, that before the coaches sent their team out there, um, they, they had a pep talk. They had one last rally, hands in the middle, big talk. In Matthew 10, this, this passage where Jesus says, I am sending you out as, as, as a sheep among wolves, he, he says, I've given you all authority. It's his pep talk. Uh, it says he gives them authority to cure sicknesses, drive out demons, and then he says this, verse 17, Be on your guard against people. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their meetings. Brother will, be will betray brother to death and a father his child. Uh, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All people will hate you because of me. Go team, right? I mean, th th seriously, think about it. Th this is not church growth strategy here. Th this is what Jesus chose to lead with here. What he's calling his followers to do is, is to die to the world's standards of glory, of, of heroism, of success. And he says, there's going to be a cost. There's going to be a different kind of hero. There's going to be a different kind of glory. But see, the church is, is always at its best when it goes out humbly, like, like sheep among wolves. Um, I was talking to my friend Wes Tucker tonight. We, he, he's going to be out at a table um, afterwards, and he was telling me about this uh, trip to, to Dearborn, Michigan, which Dearborn has, like, this is, this is just phenomenal. I didn't know this till a couple months ago. It has the highest concentration of, of Muslims anywhere outside of the Middle East, I think, certainly within the United States. And Wes is going to be leading a team there in April um, and doing two things. One is just serving a little church that's right in the center of this Muslim community, doing some construction work for them, and then the rest of the week, just going out humbly, making connections in the community, talking with them, eating with them, being with them, building relationships, going out humbly as sheep among wolves. Because, see, they remember that there was, there was this man who said, what you did for the least of these, you did for me whose heart was, was crushed both for the successful and the outsider, both for the powerful and, and, and the marginalized, the, the isolated, the prideful, the depressed, the broken, every, every individual. And we are called to be change agents in our world for sure, praying that, you know, thy kingdom come up there, come down here. But see, we don't do that by shaming our world of its sin. We don't do that by finger-pointing. We don't develop an us-them mentality. Uh, no one in here is smarter. 
No one in here is any more superior than anyone else. We are sent as sheep among wolves, humbly. So there's certainly the, the, the foreign enemy. But maybe the one that we don't think about as much, maybe the, the one that's a little bit harder to get to, it's certainly less comfortable to think about, is the, the domestic enemy. This is sin. This is the enemy that, that resides inside each one of us, the worst version of ourselves. Um, psychologist Michael Magnus writes about what he calls, uh, he uses this phrase, signature sins in our life. And he explains that each person's life is, um, is kind of unique, you know, like um, the experiences that you have, the relationships that you have, you know, the things you like, the things you dislike, uh, your abilities. This is, this is like a pattern of your life. And he goes, that's kind of how your sin is too. Your sin has a pattern to it. Things that tempt you don't tempt someone else. The way pride comes out in your life doesn't come out in someone else's life the same way. Um, so, for instance, you know, everything from, uh, you know, my gender, everyone, everyone uh, struggles with pride, you know, for instance. That's a universal sin. But, but my gender uh, influences how I express that pride in my life. My culture does that. You know, my, my religious background and, and upbringing shapes that. Um, the history of relationships that I have had uh, formed you know, hungers, personality hungers, needs in my life. My family of origin that I grew up in told me, how, how do you get those needs met? All of these different things. Um, even my biological temperament shapes that. And he writes this, he says, just like a signature, my sin pattern is so characteristic of me that it could be used to identify me. It's my sin profile, he writes. Anyone who knows me intimately would instantly recognize it as mine. And see, what's really interesting is that I would even suggest that, that the pattern of, of my sins are largely related to my greatest gifts, my greatest abilities. Um, I mean, think about this. If you're an extrovert, okay? Like, I mean, maybe you're really good at, at uh, inspiring, encouraging people, you know, moving out, using your words. Um, you could also be prone to gossip because of that great gift that you have. People who love to learn, you know, who love to uh, master new areas, they can oftentimes be tempted to feel superior, you know, kind of to look down upon those others. If you're really um, spontaneous, you know, you've got, you've got just an appetite for life, you love to just go and, and do anything, uh, you, you probably will struggle with impulse control in your life because of that gift. If you're a really good listener, you know, people seek you out for that, uh, you could really easily wander toward the sort of passive enabling of people in your life. Uh, if you're an optimist, this can, this can fall toward kind of a denial state, right? Because you don't recognize the difficulty or the bad that's out there. See, discover your gifts really in depth, know them well, and you'll find where your sin pattern lies because it goes along with it. And maybe the most deadly enemies David ever faced in his life were his own signature sins. I mean, think about, David, David's an artist. Um, you know, he has these phenomenal gifts for uh, poetry, dance, 
Um, he's a composer of many psalms, this, this and others. He loves beauty. He loves goodness. Um, he brings imagination to life by his words. His experience of faith is like so deeply felt by him. His, his, his psalms just ooze the feeling in that. And he's able to put it to words that just so many of us struggle with. And yet, see, the, the artist can oftentimes find that need to like be different, be a little different. So like that becomes an end in itself. He can be tempted to kind of uh, give in to his impulses and struggle with living an undisciplined life, which is exactly where David finds himself. And yet, see, all of our enemies, both those outside as well as those inside of us, God paints this really amazing picture in this. And he says, I have this ability to prepare a table before you in the midst of them. Meaning, they're not going to be all cleared out right away. You're going to live in the midst of them. You know what the New Testament language for that is? 2 Corinthians 9. Paul is recounting this situation where he sort of prayed to God and he said, you know, there's been these obstacles to my life, obstacles to ministry, obstacles. And he said, I prayed that God would just get rid of it. And you know what God's answer was? God said, my grace means my activity, my ability, it's sufficient for all that junk, for that obstacle. In fact, my greatness will be seen, it'll be evident, it'll be made perfect in your weakness. Isaiah chapter 25 paints a picture. Let me read a couple verses for you. Paints a picture of a feast, a table being set after a great warrior king has finally vanquished all evil. Listen to this picture. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shrouds that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And the way that he was able to do this, the way he's able to do it, is because he took, grace upon, he took disgrace upon himself. He entered into defeat in order to give us victory. He cried tears in order that he could wipe ours away because of the cross. The cross is at the center. And it's only because of that that we can stand in this center place of realizing his kingdom has come. And yet it's, it's here and not yet. We can live with this absolute core assurance amidst all the difficulties, amidst all the enemies out there and in here, living a life of actual victory with this God. But it's only because of the cross. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward. And we do something every week which